As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, it's uh, with great joy, I hope with the same joy that the angels had on that day when they announced the birth of Jesus, but we come with great joy uh, to consider, to think through um, the advents of our Lord Jesus Christ. So help us, we pray. As we come to this particular passage, I pray that your spirit brings great light to our minds and our hearts, enabling us to see what's here and to rejoice in it. And uh, this I pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Turn please to Titus and uh, chapter 2. I want to begin, uh, I want to read the passage that I've uh, been reading the last few weeks and uh, uh, beginning with verse 11 of chapter 2 and taking us through verse 8 of chapter 3. So Titus in chapter 2, verse 11, please. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, that no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're a note taker, I want you to write this down. If you're not a note taker, just keep this in mind because this is the, the point of it today. All right. So this is it. We live in the present. In light of a past event and a future hope. Very simple. We live in the present. We live right now on the basis of, grounded in, in light of, and a past event and a future hope. Some have put it like this. We live in the inter-adventual period. Interadventual is a real word. Now, I realized as I tried to find out more about this word this week that it is it is is not uh, approved in the game of Scrabble as a real word. So so don't think how many points you can get with interadventual. But it is a word. A few theologians have used this over the course of history. And it simply means what you might suspect it means. It means describing the time between the first and second comings of Jesus. His first advent, his second advent. We live in between uh, the those two advents. So we live in the interadventual period. So, so we live 
more simply put, uh, in light of a past event, the first advent, and a future hope. I take the first point, of course, as we've talked about the first advent of Jesus from verse 11 of chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, first advent, and then even in verse 4 of chapter 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, first advent, so that's a past event, as we've said. But we live now still on the basis of that, the foundation of that, we'll review some of that in a minute, the foundation of that, but we live also not on the basis of a past event, but in light of something which is going to be a future event, what he calls here, Paul does, the our blessed hope, verse 13, we live in the present age, end of verse 12, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So do you get my point at least? <laughs> we live right now in the present age on the basis of or in light of a past event, the first advent, all that happened there, and what's happening now and because of it, and yet still in light of something that's going to happen in the future. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, now today is the day we'll unpack this, is that we try to keep these first and second advents together in our mind. Now just think of one, but when we're thinking of the other, do it in light of one, we're doing it in light of the other. So when we think of the first advent of Jesus, we're doing it in light of the second. When we talk about the second advent, we're doing it in light of the first, keeping them together. And this is that way to realize that we live now in light of this past event, first advent, and second advent, this blessed hope. Now the reason, and Paul lays this out now in his letter, uh, as he does, is, is that there's a relationship between knowing and believing the truth about Jesus and how we live. There's a relationship between knowing the truth and how we live. Notice, as we've said before from chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul writes, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And so you see, this truth accords with godliness. This truth leads to, is consistent with godliness. If it doesn't, it's not the truth or we're not getting the truth one way or another. And so uh, the difficulty as we then read through the first chapter of Titus is that the people in Crete, where Titus is and the believers there and he's organizing churches there, that the people in Crete aren't teaching themselves the right truth and aren't living then according to the truth that Paul and Titus had laid out the real truth. We see that in verse 16 of chapter 1. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. That is, they're living in such a way that says they really don't believe the truth because this truth accords with a certain kind of living. It accords with godliness. And they're not living that way. And so they profess to know God, but they deny him by their work. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so when Paul writes to Titus, he says, well, here's how I have to deal with this. First of all, you need a group of men who are elders who are going to demonstrate this godliness by their lives and are going to know this truth in such a way that they can rebuke those who teach falsely and then teach that which is true. So, so that's the first order of business. 
And then he goes on in chapter 2 and he says, now this is how you're to teach them to live. Verse 1 in chapter 2, he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach them how to live. What is it that goes along with the truth that you teach? And so he teaches older men on how they're to live. He teaches older women as to how they're to live. He teaches young women as to how they're to live. Young men as to how they're to live. He, li- he teaches even slaves. This is how you're to live in sort of broad categories. But, but this is the life that accords with godliness. Now, if we ended there, what we might think is that, or, or let me put it this way. What we might do is, is fall into one of two ditches, if you will, along the lines of trying to follow after Jesus. We might fall into the ditch of legalism on one side or moralism on the other side, right? Legalism goes something like this. Because we're estranged from God, to get back to him, to be reconciled to him, we have to do these things. We have to live a godly life. And if we live a godly life, obey the law, then we'll be accepted by God and reconciled to him. That's legalism. So at this point, if you're reading along, you go, oh, yes, we've got to do these things. We've got to be really good. We've got to be godly. And then we'll be accepted by God. That's legalism. Wrong. Moralism says really what Christianity is all about is just loving your neighbor. Just doing better. Just being the proverbial American good person. That's what it's really about. We we don't need all this Jesus stuff. Really, the point of it is that all that's really necessary is we need to live good lives. And if we live good lives, then we've got it. Well, that isn't true either, right? It's not about just being good. That's not Christianity. But godliness accords with this gospel. But, but this gospel, this truth, this doctrine, this sound doctrine that they were to teach destroys both legalism and moralism. Because if you really look at the coming of Jesus, you see, you see what he did. He came to save. He came to rescue. That means people were lost. That means people were in bondage. That means people couldn't do all this stuff for themselves. That's the nature of being saved. It's the recognition that I'm lost that I need to be found, that I need to be rescued, if you will, and I can't do it myself. So legalism doesn't work because I can't do that. The more I try, the more I should realize I can't do that. And so Jesus comes to to redeem us. And it isn't just simply moralism because I, I can't do that. I can't simply do better. I'm stuck in this. So we see the folly and frustration of both legalism and moralism and how the gospel destroys them both. And so, so he comes and, and Paul begins then with this word for. Here's the sound doctrine, right? It's a review for us, not just from the last two weeks, but from the last, your whole life in understanding the gospel, right? You, you get this. That's why the for is there. He says, I'm commanding you to live like this because Christ has come. Because he's appeared. And when he appeared, he came to bring salvation for all kinds of people, even people like you, even people like me, for old men, young men, old women, young women, slaves, you name it. He brought it for people like us, all people. And he came to redeem, that is to free. To redeem means to free, to buy back, right? And so he redeemed us As we've been mentioning the last couple of Sundays, please 
Keep thinking this through. You know, we have this little expression that our dear brother Jerry Bridges has laid on us you know, to preach the gospel to yourself every day. We, we like to say that. So, but what do we do when we preach the gospel to ourselves every day? We, we do this. We go through this every day, you see. While you're in the shower, it's, it's, I do this in the shower. I think through because, you know, it's just in the shower and I don't want to sing. And so you think through this redemption. We've been redeemed. We've been, re- we've been freed from the penalty of sin and from its power. We rehearsed that last Sunday, Romans chapter 6. We've been united with Christ. He is our representative. He goes before us. What he does is for us. And thus vicariously what he does, we do. And so in Romans 6 we read that when he died, we died. He he paid the penalty for our sin. It's done. It's over. No double jeopardy here. No dying again here to sin because of it. Physical death, yes, but not. Eternal death. And so he died, and thus, when he did, he freed us from the penalty of sin. He paid its penalty. But when he rose, and thus when we rose, he rose, thus we rose, to newness of life, the scripture says. To a new life. That's why Ezekiel could say, please have this always in your mind from Ezekiel 36, take out our heart of stone, put it in the heart of flesh, put his spirit within us, and cause us to walk in his ways. That's the newness. That's the newness of the new covenant with Jeremiah is going to write his law in our hearts and minds. So now we're inclined to it. That's Jesus talking about this new birth. Really, something has happened in us to reorient us completely away from sin and to the things of God. That's why this all makes sense to us because he's given us this new life. That's why Paul would write to the church in Corinth and says, never forget that you're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Other translations, your new creations, something really, really has happened. And, and we, that's when we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That's what we're rehearsing. And we were lost and we were rescued. We were enslaved to sin and now we're delivered. And why? Because of his grace. It was the grace of God that appeared. It wasn't because we deserved it. It was his grace that did all of that. And what did it do? It paid the penalty for our sin. We didn't deserve it. It broke the power of sin. So then when we hear these commandments, it isn't legalism or moralism. When we hear these commandments, we realize our lives are now lived in light of a past event. Something's happened. Christ has died. And thus we are justified, as the scripture says. God sees us and declares us as his forgiven and righteous and accepted. That's where, that's who we are. And now he says, because you're that, my spirit's at work within you. And here's why I, 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 I really saved you to free you from sin. Not just its penalty. That'd be wonderful, but it would also be frustrating, wouldn't it? If, if, if all we had was that God said, hey, you're forgiven. Now you're going to keep living in sin till you die. But you're forgiven. And we'd say, but rats. It's this sin that makes my life so miserable. 
oh, I'm happy that I'm forgiven and all that, but you mean I got to live the next 10, 20, 40, 60 years, 80, whatever it's going to be. I got to live continuing in this sin. Living in rebellion again? That doesn't, that's, is that really salvation? He said, no, no, no. Just kidding. That isn't salvation. I'm saving you from this. And so I'm breaking the penalty. I'm paying the penalty. I'm breaking the power. And now I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to tell you how you're to live. And, and you're to live that out. Now, now you've got to engage in this. You've got to engage in this. You've got to say no or renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's going to be your, your daily ritual as you live your life. To say no to all of the things that you once said yes to. And it, it's going to be painful. It will be a struggle. So you have to renounce it in no uncertain terms. In other places, Paul would say, you have to put it to death. Uh, the, the old King James language, it's as scary as the Dickens, scared me as a kid. <laughs> Not enough. But uh, it was to mortify the flesh. Right? To kill it, to put to death ungodliness and worldly passions. And put on then Christ and all that is true of him. Put on compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience and goodness and forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. I mean, that's the life you see. Now, if I could urge you to concentrate on the positive rather than the negative. Both are involved. But as we know, the, the more we desire and practice putting on Christ, of thinking and acting gently and meekly and kindly and to do that which is good and to think that which is good and to say that which is good, that, that, that when we do that, it helps to kill all the, all the negatives. Some of you uh, has, have read a sermon entitled the expulsive power of a new affection. Um, in the sense that when we have these new affections, these new loves, you see, that those new loves drive out past loves, loves that we shouldn't have. I mean, that's the, that's the nature of courtship, isn't it? When, when a, a, a man and a woman meet and they begin to court together, this new affection is to destroy and cast out all old affections, right? And if it doesn't, there's great trouble, right? And so that's the sense of it. The new affection for Christ that he's put in us. This is a new life. Embrace that fact. You may say, I don't feel that way, but, but embrace the fact of it, that it's really, really, really happened. There are times in, in like when I'm doing my own little, what people call quiet times. There are times I write on pieces of paper in front of me, this really happened. This is really true. Well, I'll, I'll circle verses like this one, that, that it's really true. That I've been redeemed. And I've been redeemed for a purpose. And that purpose, as he says in verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And I write passages like that down and I say, this is true, this is me. 
And it startles me just like it just startled you. This is me. This is I. Do the grammar. So I am. It really is. I am one purified and being purified. So that I'll be zealous, enthusiastic, (laughs) desiring, wanting, bent on good works to do that which is good. That's who I am. That's who we are as believers. That's why he redeemed us. He didn't redeem us simply to forgive us. He did. And, and to, but he didn't save us to leave us in the muck of our sin. And that's grace. That's such wonderful news. And so now he's saying, get after it. So here's the truth of it. Now live it out. And the good news is he doesn't leave us to live it out on our own. Romans chapter 8. I don't have time for this. Romans chapter 8 begins with this word of forgiveness that he broke. He paid the penalty. Romans 8. Turn to it quickly. Uh, Romans 8 verse 1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We get that. But then also he tells us what's true because of that. Uh, Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Something's happened to you, this new life. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him, which means all who belong to him have the spirit of Christ at work in us. But verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And then verse 12, so then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, You'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That is the fear of judgment. The fear that sin really still has this grip on you. Right? Not necessarily being afraid of the dark or afraid of the economy, but being afraid that you'll fall back into the slavery to sin. Don't live in fear. Don't live in the fear that you're going to fall back into that. But rather, live in the joy that you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons whom we cry, Abba, Father. And and you see, that is true of us. And so, past event, so we're to live. What motivates that? What keeps us going and all that? Well, on the one hand, we could say gratitude. Right? I mean, if you're not grateful... To God for what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. And you're not a Christian. You don't get it. See, gratefulness comes, as we've said so many times, not on the basis of a comparison between what we have and what we need, or what we want and what we need, but what we deserve and what we have. We deserve to be condemned, but he doesn't. And that should make us grateful. What, what happens when we, when we become a, a believer in Jesus is we say, I was all wrong. You're all right. I want, I need you. Right? So that's the sense of it. And he graciously says, well, huh, that's a recognition of what I've done. That's a recognition of the new life that's yours. In me, I've done it. And it produces, should, gratefulness in us. But it's not the kind of gratefulness, be careful with this, it's not the kind of gratefulness that says, well, because you've done all this for me, then I guess I'll have to do all this for you. It isn't that way at all. 
He says, well, you've done so much for me. Now I'm going to do all this for you. No, 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 no. is isn't like that. The other night, a couple of weeks ago, I was with a friend for a couple of days. And I had, Karen and I, in fact, and we had had dinner with them and, uh, when we flew in. And he bought dinner, which was kind of him. The next day we were out and I said to him, because you bought dinner, I'll buy lunch. Now, that was sort of the guy way of saying, you know, I'm just going to do this and da, da, da. And he looked at me and said exactly what should have been said. And he said, don't buy lunch because I bought dinner. You don't owe me. If you want to buy lunch, if that brings you joy, buy lunch. But you don't owe me. Because you see, this gratitude should create in us love. Not, not a payback, but, but you see, when we've been so loved, and we see that we've been so loved, and we're grateful, well, we're, we should love. That's, the, that's what it should evoke in us. Yes, gratitude, but, but gratitude is just one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is love. I, I now have new affections. Now I love what you love. I get it now. And so that's what, what drives me, this gratitude that, that wells up within me. Love. And I say, okay, I, I love you. So sure, I'll follow you. I'm not paying you back. I'm not doing this because you do I love you. That's how gratitude is expressed. The joy. My, my love for my friend wasn't because he bought dinner. It's because I love, and I wanted to buy him lunch. That was great. As a sign of affection, not to pay him back. And so that's the sense of it. This gratitude leads to love. That I love what he is. Love. And so he says, okay, you, you live now in the present in light of that past event. But don't forget this. The glory of Jesus will appear. Notice how Paul puts it. He said, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for his appearance. And it's our blessed hope. That is, blessed means to be highly favored, to receive a good word. And so this is the greatest benediction of all. This is the greatest good that could ever come, the appearing of Jesus. We're waiting for that. And it's our blessed hope is appearing. And notice how Paul puts it, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You need a divinity of Jesus passage. This is your one. Couldn't be clearer. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is going to appear. And that's our hope. Why? Because that's what we long for now. You see, when we become a Christian, we say, I was wrong, you were right. My best glory. You see, the world right now reflects the glory of the best thinking and the best affections of human beings. The world right now reflects our best thinking and our best affections, what we love. And look at our world. Everybody, not just Christians. Everybody says, there are major things wrong here. Right? Major things. Every political campaign is based upon the fact that it isn't what it should be. And every political campaign is based on the fact that it isn't what it should be. But I and my people will make it what it should be. And they never have. We're still fighting wars. 
We still hate each other. The prejudice among us is rampant. The slander, the hatred, the difficulties. Plus, we still die. And so, and so we, we see it hasn't, it's the same as it's always been. And so we're saying, no, 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 our glory, no, your glory. What, what we desire is everything to reflect you. And he says, it will. He says, the day is coming. You're living right now in this past event where I've freed you from sin's penalty and power. But, but, but now, re- remember, a day is going to come when, when you'll see me in my glory and everything will reflect me. So there'll be a judgment and all of sin and sinners who do not believe and are forgiven will be eradicated from the face of the earth and the whole earth will be renewed. I have in time, but read uh, Isaiah chapter 65. Read Second Peter chapter 3. Read Revelation chapter 21. And you, you get this blessed hope that everything will reflect Jesus. And so John writes, I read this earlier, in First John chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See what kind of love uh, the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that they didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. And we go, I get that. <laughs> you know, I know that I've been freed from sin's penalty and I live in forgiveness. And I know I've, lived, I've been freed from his power and I'm struggling to say no to ungodliness. So it isn't what it's going to be. But then notice what he says. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That is, we'll reflect him. Everything will reflect his glory. When we see him, we'll be perfected in every way, body and spirit. And, and so we'll be like him in that sense. We're his glory. We reflect him. And, and it'll be really true. There'll be no more hatred. There'll be no more war. There'll be no more poverty. There'll be no more injustice. There'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more grief. There'll be no more tragedy. Uh, there'll be no confusion even. There'll be uh, uh, contentment. There'll be no death. There'll be no dying. Everything will reflect him. And, and that's our hope, you see. When you read the paper, what's your hope? When you look at the, 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 the news, what's your hope? When you, when you go to your, all your little sites that give you news, what's your hope in the midst of all of this? When you live life with people, what's your hope? As you look in your own heart, what's your hope? This appearing of Jesus, that, that, that I'll be glorified with him. And, 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 and here we see it. And he says, yes, when we see him, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him, that is, hopes in Jesus and the glory of Christ, purifies himself. I could put in parentheses my own now as he is pure. He says, if that's your hope, really, get on with it. Purify yourself as he is pure. Live life in a pure way. Last Sunday, second service, I gave that group my favorite forgiveness story. I didn't give it to you. I owe it to you. Um, it's a story I tell every five years. So if you know it, just put it in right there. But today I'm going to give you my favorite sanctification story. I've only shared it twice in 27 years. So if you know it, bless you. Uh, it's, it's apocryphal. It's just, a, just an illustration goes like this. 
as a 10-year-old boy, sleeping, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, he gets awoken by an angel. And the angel says to him, it's been decreed by God that you're going to be the best basketball player the University of Kansas has ever known. Kid goes, what's he going to do? Well, it depends. It depends on his heart. Let's say he hates basketball. And he hears that news and he says, I'm just going to go about my life. I don't own a basketball. I'm not going to buy one. There's no hoop in the driveway. I'm just, I guess I'm stuck. When I'm 18, I'll enroll, I guess, and I'll be the best basketball player ever. But let's say his heart is such that he loves basketball. What's he going to do? My suspicion is he's going to slide out of bed, find his sneakers or whatever they're called now, lace them up or however they put them on, and go out and flip on the light, the the driveway, and start shooting. Parents are going to wonder what's going on. But he's going to shoot. And every time he misses, he's going to think, that's all right. Someday I'm going to make that shot. I know it. And and every time he makes one, he's going to say, see, it's true. I really am. Why? Past event, decree, future hope that's certain. But it requires a heart that believes and loves. But you see, that's what's happened to us. That's what happened. If you're a believer in Jesus, something has happened because of the first coming of Jesus. You've been redeemed, forgiven, new heart to love his glory. And when you hear his commandments, they're not to be burdensome. You're to say, yes. Now, when you fail, when you sin, you ask forgiveness, but, but you don't get depressed and you say, but, but a day is going to come, really. God, help me to overcome this. And you're praying it with good hope because he's at work in you. And you know that a day is going to come when you reflect perfectly his glory. And that's your blessed hope as you wait for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This table is to help us know that we live on the basis of a past event with a blessed hope in a future event. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Use this in remembrance of me, that is to say. I'm going to do something, and he did something. Same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, he's saying, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. But then the apostle adds concerning this meal. He says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death, past event, until he comes. Future hope. Because you see, we 
eat here knowing we've been redeemed. Sins forgiven. Spirit within us. Change our hearts to incline us to him that we may hear his commands and obey. Because he came to redeem a people from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people zealous for good works. But we also then look for the day that he comes because that day will satisfy everything within us. To come to this table on this day. This is to give you great confidence to live now in light of a past event and the hope that is to come. Let's pray. Father, pray now that you would take this bread, this juice, and set it apart in such a way that we know that we're in the very presence of Jesus. That he's here among us spiritually here among us, with us. He promised never to leave and forsake us. He's here right now. So I pray, Jesus, that as we come to this table, that you will feed us and fill us. That you will grant us grace to live now as redeemed people, knowing that you are to come. And this I pray, In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it. I know you always make noise when I get to this point because you're kind of getting ready to come. So I just went, you settled now? Okay, good. Now, listen. Invites to it all those who know themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. But you've received his sovereign mercy and grace. Because you believe in Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior, redeemer of sinners. Pay the penalty, break the power of sin. You know that. And that's how you live in hope of the glory that will be revealed. If that's true for you, I invite you to come. These two sections come down the to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. I dip it in the cup and say, Christ has come. I'm redeemed. And Christ is coming again. <laughs> Hallelujah. Please come. Mm-hmm.